Welcome to this Innovation Forum podcast with me, Ian Welsh. Joining me today is Jason Glazer, who's CEO of the LISA Network and an epidemiologist who's been advising the World Health Organization and Occupational Health, but also advising the office of Kamala Harris, Vice President of the United States. Welcome back to the podcast, Jason. Well, it's lovely to be here. Thanks, as usual, for having me and the organization of the network. Let's talk a bit about your work then. I mean, I know you've been investigating the impacts of heat for agricultural workers in the tropics. How does increasing temperatures impact agricultural workers? It's that intersection of high environmental temperatures and workload. If the temperatures are increasing even more, it's even more difficult for people to dissipate the heat they're building up as they work hard in those temperatures. So as the climate warms, both in the tropics and abroad, it's going to be even more difficult for people to protect themselves without really intensive mitigations to basically bring down that core temperature, make sure they're hydrated, and basically make sure they're cool in really tough environments. What the outcomes can be are both short-term and more long-term. So some of the short-term outcomes that should be of interest to everybody listening are outright death and illness from heat stroke and other heat-related illnesses. There's also the issue of reduced productivity. It's just much harder to work efficiently when you're that hot and continually hot. And the other one is most injuries are going to go up when you're that hot consecutively, especially day after day. I mean, just think of yourself working in your garden or after a long run in high heat, you're not really working with your full faculties. So you're more likely if in a working situation to maybe cut yourself, to take a tumble, if you're on a construction site, to take a fall. There's the immediate impact of outright death, cardiac arrest, organ failure due to heat stroke, and then other injuries. And then the longer term impacts can be organ damage, which seems to have a focus or locus on the kidney, and the kidney can fail over time. So it's really important to just invest in the prevention on the front end, because all of those outcomes are just unnecessarily dangerous, life-threatening, and frankly, very expensive for companies, for individuals, for the communities, and for health systems. It makes more sense to invest in protecting workers from this now. From your research then, what do you think will be the likely impacts of climate change in this regard? We're already seeing what we've been seeing in the tropics for decades now come up to northern and more southern latitudes. So places that we've thought of as temperate, like the Pacific Northwest, will have these heat bubbles and they will not be that short. They'll persist for long times. And we've already seen quite a high rate of mortality due to that. And we're also going to be seeing issues in Europe. We already have in Spain and Italy and Greece with agricultural workers and other workers at risk. What was kind of something that people maybe wanted to put out of sight, out of mind on commodities in the tropics are now affecting us right at home. Today, it's really hot in the UK. I would wonder if people in the UK could imagine swinging machete, cutting seven tons of sugarcane today, you know, in that heat without a break, without adequate water. Absolutely not. Thanks very much. So yes, but it certainly <laughs> does give us an idea of how these impacts are shifting. And what was once confined to tropical regions is now something that we're going to see likely across for outdoor workers, across more temperate zones. What will be the impact for companies with tropical and other commodities in their supply chains? This one's tough. The easy answer is this. The easy answer is the impact is they're going to get in there. They're going to really evaluate their supply chains. They're really going to work with partners on the ground and in the development sector to address these shortfalls in labor protections. And they're going to make sure that not one single worker dies in a multi-billion dollar company through their supply chain. That's the easy answer. That's the doable and the achievable answer. I have to say, though, I mean, and you've watched this over 10 years, we have struggled to convince en masse 
brands and producers to come together with us as researchers to really make this thing an issue of the past. It should be an issue of the past. It's the 21st century, and we're still talking about and still pushing for evaluated programs to keep core temperature down and keep workers safe from that one major occupational health risk of heat stress. You know, what that could be is also a gateway to address the other issues of occupational health and employment, but it's such an addressable one. I don't want to say it's easy, but it's achievable. So the tougher answer is companies have to start coming together with other actors and really trying to leverage the change that they promise their consumers, that they promise their shareholders, and that they promise folks at conferences. We frankly have not seen that in mass yet, but the door is wide open. And I think, I hope what we're seeing with this kind of coverage about the heat wave in the Pacific Northwest and this kind of reckoning that seems to be going on, that this is here, it's going other places, this heat is real, it's mortal. I hope it activates that change we've been advocating for. Yes, there does seem to be an enormous risk on the horizon. And in fact, here right now for companies regarding the occupational health of workers in their supply chains. You know, it's the next reputational risk bomb, I'd imagine it's just going to come. So are companies taking this seriously, Jason? Not enough. I mean, for the earlier comments, I want to be able to say, yes, it's awesome. Everybody's giving us a call and asking how they can protect their workforce. I mean, we've seen a few things. We've seen either denial from producers historically, though I would say that is changing in the Mesoamerican context. There's a lot of excitement and willingness to change. So that gets to the second bit. Having a program is insufficient. You have to have a program that has been adequately designed and also adequately implemented. And that takes time. I mean, change takes time. It needs to be adequately evaluated because we need to talk about impact. We need to know what were the outcomes before or have at least an estimate and then show that by proper implementation and execution, we're actually bringing those incidents of death and injury down. That's what we need to see. It's such a small investment and it's something that can actually be solved. You know, if, if it's not going to be one of these forever battles to solve. It's so doable, but we don't solve it by not coming together and not working together. We have to start that conversation now. We have to put in the investments as companies, as development institutions, as governments, the requisite resources and finances to get it done. I have not seen that yet, but I do think it's on the horizon and, and, and the door is wide open and we are ready to go. Let's talk a little bit about what companies can do about it. Firstly, let's just unpack a little bit of your research. There are some very simple, straightforward things that can be done in the field to mitigate the effects of heat stress, aren't there? I mean, why don't you run us through those? I think the first step you'd want to do is evaluate what's currently happening, understand the structure of the organization, how it's organized, how it's managed day to day, kind of identify what some of the weak links or the links that need strengthening to understand why this work is important, why prevention of heat stress is important. I would really start there. Evaluation and a good organizational management assessment. So you kind of get everybody aligned, everybody on board and everybody kind of excited about the work and not looking at it like yet another barrier or task. And we've shown that that's possible. Then it's really about introducing a system of water, rest, shade, and sanitation. But it's about having mobile tents that stay close to the cutting front or the work site for other industries. It's about having sufficient rest, depending on the workload of the job you're trying to protect, so that you keep that core temperature down. And it's about consistency of implementation. Because the scary thing about heat stroke or heat stress in general is just one bad day of implementation could be mortal for people, could lead to their death or their long-term injury. So it's really important to not just have a great design, but really have a robust implementation assessment as well. And then once you get that rolling, 
you evaluate year to year, both your implementation and your outcomes, you know, your health outcomes, your productivity outcomes, and the rest of it. When you have that system in place, it just becomes the norm of business, just like a company manages its logistics, just like a company manages its advertising and sales team. It's just another set of data to easily analyze and measure against. And I think that's when it becomes an issue of the past. That's when it becomes a total success, when it's just business as usual. We don't harm workers who provide basic commodities. I think that's so achievable. Listeners, I would recommend you look at the work of La Isla Network, their work in Nicaragua, where they have proven in sugarcane setting the effectiveness of the shade, the water, and the rest and sanitation interventions that, uh, that Jason just mentioned. Let's think this a bit more broadly. How is policy changing around agricultural worker health? And what are the best practice specifics that companies should be aware of? Yeah, this is getting interesting. So I think one of the problems in the tropics is that the guidelines that everybody points to are these OSHA guidelines that frankly, nobody's really sure where they emerge from, and they might be overly conservative. So there's an effort right now in research to figure out what is required for proper breaks and hydration to protect health that could be achievable in high temperatures. Because right now, if you follow those OSHA guidelines in Nicaragua, or frankly, in Oregon right now, nobody would be working at all because it's too hot many days to work past maybe 9am, 10am. But if that's the way it is, then that's another conversation if that's actually impacting health. But the suspicion is you can moderate that a bit. Now, on the other side, you have another problem where some of these new regulations or emergency responses like an organ are coming in. And from what I understood, they're insufficient, they're woefully insufficient. Like if it's 30 degrees or above, there's supposed to be something like 10 minutes of rest every two hours. Well, that's not going to do the job. That's not going to bring your core temperature down. That's not going to protect you either. So the regulatory framework right now, I think is in process. Like that's not where it needs to be. So I think what companies need to do is they need to kind of lead the way. And that's about on-site evaluation of core jobs that are in your supply chains, and then understanding through the process that we've developed with the Adelante Initiative, what's required to maintain a healthy core temperature or an adequately cool core temperature so you don't have some of these risks evolve. It's not an easy answer. The issue in short is current regulation may be too conservative. We're trying to figure that out. Some of the emergency response is insufficient and actually none of it's really regulation, it's recommendation from OSHA. So there's a long way to go. Now, the good news in the States is there's a big push in the Senate and Congress to address this, but it's really going to be beholden to the research community and employers to do what's best with the best available data. And I think that's achievable and doable. You mentioned some guidelines just now, the OSHA guidelines. So how do you spell OSHA? Occupational Safety Health Administration, and that's O-S-H-A. And those are a good place to start. But again, they're they're a bit conservative. So I think what needs to be done is that evaluation program assessment of new practices, and then seeing if those are effective. Who can companies go to help sort this out? And where, I mean, other sources of finance available to help to really engage in these serious issues? Yeah, research wise, I mean, La Isla Network can certainly put teams together for you. I mean, the whole idea of the network is it's not really about one group of researchers. There's a lot of researchers now, physiologists, epidemiologists, hygienists that can get out there and function as practitioners to help you achieve these goals. So on the research side, that's available. People would be literally falling over themselves to help protect a workforce all over the world. But you know, one thing I've realized is being the tip of the spear for a company, be it a producer or a brand, sometimes puts you at a very unfair competitive advantage because you're taking resources and investing in protecting people while others are not. 
And unfortunately, right now, the market is not sufficiently rewarding those who take the charge, take the lead. So I think it's important that people come together. And I think when people come together, a lot of things happen in terms of like having the expertise and different perspectives to make things work long term. And it also allows potentially for the subsidization of a program until it becomes the norm. And so what I mean by that is development agencies like USAID, the equivalents in Europe, the BMZ or the GIZ in Germany, things like the development banks, like the World Bank on a state level, the development finance institutions like the International Finance Corporation or the DEG could really step in and help supplement these changes and these shifts, especially for producers. And then brands can come in as well and help support that. And then there's also philanthropy that can come in and support this. So my view is, let's say you have a mill in the Dominican Republic, and there's been resistance to change, and much of it is financial. But if that mill, a group of top gun researchers, a big brand comes in, and a development institution comes in, and they say, let's get together and do this, there will be the resources and there will be, frankly, excitement, especially within the development community, to have such a program launch, because that's what it's going to take. But that doesn't happen if we don't start talking to each other. And so I guess that's my consternation and my disappointment in 10 years. We've been trumpeting this. We've been here the whole time. And it's been the minority of experience that we've got that going in Nicaragua. And now we have two mills in Mexico, I'm happy to say. And that work is supported by the U.S. Department of Labor, World Vision ourselves, and a group of mills from Beta San Miguel. But again, the brands are absent. So how do we get everybody at the table? And how do we make this in the past? I think you got to start the conversation and figure out the roles and the resources for each party. Do you think that the brands and everyone else will come to the table at scale before there's a massive scandal? Or is it going to take a big scandal to really make this happen? That's a great question. And it's one I've wrestled with for 10 years because, frankly, you often feel like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If you sit by and you try to glad hand and be nice to everybody, you often end up in what I have found to be circular conversations that don't end in anything concrete, that don't end in any real protections. And there's a lot of self-satisfaction in those conversations I've found. And people will trumpet programs that are inadequate, that are unevaluated, and say, oh, we're doing something. We have a water rest shade program. But they have no idea if it's sufficient. So you could be just continuing to harm people. You likely are, because this takes some specificity on the front end. And then when you've tried every single reasonable way to engage and educate and reach out to a party, be they a producer or a brand, and you finally go, you know, enough is enough. My mission at La Isla Network is to protect workers. You're in the way of that. I need to call you out. We have a mission conflict right now. Then when you call them out and you actually drive change and things begin to improve and you see like an incredible shift because there was that pressure. Some people go, oh, you know, you're difficult or we have allergies to you is a term they use in Latin America. So, you know, where does that leave the person or the group that's really trying to push things forward? So my thought is, how do we avoid all that nonsense, frankly? And how do we just get together, look at the facts, evaluate the resources required and fix an issue that's so eminently reasonable and eminently achievable to, to address and stop vilifying, you know, the guy or the group or the groups of people, or the people themselves that are working, when they say, hey, this isn't okay, I don't want to die of kidney disease, I don't want to drop from a heat stroke, or I don't want to watch this unnecessarily. It's a tough answer, but you've watched me work on this, I think, for the be almost a decade. We've been working on it for 12 years. 
I think both you and I would be dishonest in saying it's where we thought it would be <laughs> by now. There's some really good progress. The project in Mexico is really cool. The project in Nicaragua is groundbreaking, but it's time for some real talk. It's time for let's get to work. Let's roll up our sleeves. The past is what it is. Impressions are what they may have been, but the data is there. The will is there. The ability is there. Let's save some lives. I mean, it does seem that there's a bit of an opportunity here, perhaps to leverage the climate crisis into helping focus the minds of many businesses onto this potential huge human rights and occupational health issue in their supply chain. So at the moment, it does feel seem to be sort of sleepwalking towards a, a scandal. But yes, <laughs> but let's, let's help leverage them the not. Let's let's help them wake up and have a victory. You know, like wouldn't it be nice not to have to pay a PR firm? and legal counsel because you slept walked into a scandal. Wouldn't it be nice to just invest much less money into solving a problem that is just a clear and present danger? Let's make it happen, right? Indeed. Let's see if that can happen. But for now, Jason Glazer from Lisa Network, thanks very much indeed. Indeed.